Welcome to Out of the Blank. Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Carla, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Hi, I, um, I'm Carla Jointson. I've uh, written a, a few books over the years, and the one that uh, I am most interested in uh, at the moment are uh, is the Canton Asylum for Insane Indians uh, and the whole subject of insanity. So uh that's i'm assuming what we're going to talk about and uh i just love the topic uh, for sure how'd you get interested in looking into asylums and then how'd you stumble across the canton one I, to be honest i've never heard of it but it's not really a big surprise to me because there's so much about history it seems like there's a horrible thing that happens you're like oh my god how do i not know about this and you realize it's like it's like last week is like you know twenty thousand years ago to some people so you start kind of realizing there's a lot going on and i'm interested in learning about you know your interest in the sane asylums and also um the canton one as well i had always been interested in history and uh as i was writing this book i did end up getting a master's degree in history but i had seen something i don't know if it was a movie or a, a tv show or something about insane asylums and i had always associated those with victorian england and did not realize at the time that there were many in the United States. And when I started getting around on the researching a little bit on the internet, I thought I would like to write something about it. Um, I, I realized that every state had insane asylums, that they were extremely uh, popular in the 1800s to early 1900s. And I came across this Canton Asylum for Insane Indians and did not realize at first it was a, an actual institution. I thought it was just something made up that somebody else was writing about. But the more I read, the little bit that was out on the internet, the more I realized this was an actual place. And it was a federal institution. It was a federal insane asylum exclusively for Native American people. And I just could not get it out of my mind that something like that had actually existed. And that's why I started writing about it. Could you take me through maybe a little bit about what the Canton Asylum was? Um, what were some of the things that were going on there that were, I guess, put off to you that just seemed horrible? Well, when I first read about it, um, of course, sort of the more, most horrific details of, of the asylum were what were actually on the Internet. Um, people being chained and, and uh, starved and all this other stuff. And uh, as I got more into the documentation, no one had really, had, and this is what I, I guess I'm really the proudest of, is no one had really got into the actual details of it the way that I did at that time. Um, I, I started getting historical documents so that I could understand what was going on. And I think I actually probably had a... Um, a little bit of a, a 
advantage over people who were more expert in this area because I didn't know anything about Native American policy at the time. I didn't know much about insanity and how it was treated, which is what I was interested in. And so I knew what the average person didn't know because I didn't know it either. And what I found out was that, um, you know, as bizarre as it sounds and, and as bizarre as the whole uh topic of insane asylums goes, it was started with probably a very beneficial reason. Um, Native Americans suffered a lot of uh, prejudice at the time, and local uh, local to a reservation, uh, a state institution didn't want to treat them, and an Indian agent, which is what they call sort of interfaces between the government and reservations, um, simply suggested, hey, wouldn't it be a good idea to have an asylum exclusively for Native peoples? Of course, he called them Indians, and that's the terminology that I use throughout the book just because I wanted to stay in keeping with the, the times that I was writing about. And so, you know, the actual idea for it was probably uh, conceived for the right reasons, I guess. Um, that's probably the last good thing <laughs> most things start with uh bad intent most things start with good intentions but end up going bad uh eventually you look into the history of asylums you start realizing that it just became a place that you can dump people that you didn't feel like dealing with or just cutting them out from society much like treating it like a disease um instead of maybe proper methods and care uh it's just when you talk about a, a native american only asylum that to me i already start getting bad images going in my head like there i mean they weren't treated exactly nicely um without any mental issues or anything of that sort but then putting one exclusively into an asylum and i think if you look into some of these asylums i mean i've heard horror stories from so many asylums of live cancer cell injections in asylums and just treating people or just not and treating in an aspect of being able to test out products from pharmaceutical companies on people and it's called it in uh, conformed consent and i'm like how do you give informed consent when you're locked up like it doesn't make sense whether you want to say it's for an uh, incarceration or whether you want to say it's an asylum i mean you're you talked about chains people are in chains i don't really consider that having your own freedoms well uh, one thing i guess i want to uh, make clear is that my period of interest uh, has been like from the 1850s to 1930 or so so that's the period I'm talking about when it comes to insane asylums. And to give you some background on it, you know, in America, in England, in every Western country, um, up until the age of the asylums, uh, people didn't know what to do with those who were deemed mentally ill. Um, there were no treatments, there was no medicine, and either families took care of them as best they could, and if they were burdens, not very well. And there were no, no places outside of jails or whatever for anybody to go to. And so the plight of an insane person up until about the 1830s was really pretty dire. And in the United States, the, the movement toward more humane treatment started in France and almost simultaneously in England. Uh, in the uh, the very, very late uh, 1700s, and then came over to the U.S. somewhere around 1930, I would say, or 1830. And 
a woman named Dorothea Dix, who had absolutely no political power, of course, being a woman at that time, uh, was teaching the Sunday school in a jail. And she noticed that there were some insane women there. And they were being treated worse than the inmates because at that time people didn't think um, insane people felt cold or hunger or you know anything like that. And she became passionately interested. And she, as as you know, a, a non-voting, non any you know uh, power powerless female, she goaded the legislatures at the time to develop places where people could be uh, who were insane, where they could get humane treatment. And so the the interesting thing is, is that even though now today you would say insane asylum, and that just conjures up the most horrific images in, in the world, at the time they were a hundred times better than what was available, which might be a shed out in the back or a cellar downstairs or you know, grandma in the attic or whatever. And people, unfortunately, because I've read, you know, many accounts, people were beaten, starved, uh, just treated horrendously. And suddenly here came these beautiful, absolutely beautiful palatial buildings uh, with trained at the time, you know, as well as could be uh, doctors to take care of them, attendants, uh, good food, clothing, all that. They were asylums in every sense of the word for people who, you know, were obviously having some mental issues. And, you know, it, it's that's the irony of it is that they were probably very wonderful places at the time they started. And a lot of factors went into making them uh, failures. But insane asylums at the time were probably. Uh, you know, just a hundred steps up from what was going on for most people. And it could have went right, but I, I mean, I, I would say overcrowding, like we said, various issues. But didn't, yeah. There's various issues that led to its kind of downfall in a sense. Um, but I mean, it, it was on the right path in the beginning, and then it kind of started to fall away. I don't know what that was. I don't know if it was, you know, eventually it was just testing out products or things of that sort, and it did become dark. And I mean, there hasn't it, – it's been a disconnect. There um, – they were in, – in a lot of this is just my opinion. You know, every historian is going to come to a subject with a little bit different viewpoint, a little, you know, I'm sure bias or whatever, uh, or sensibility. And I really think they were victims of their own success. You know, at the time, and uh, up until, you know, probably the 1900s, quite late, there was a lot of stigma about mental illness. Uh, people thought it was inherited. And so people in the 1800s, if you had a mental illness, there was no cure for it. There was no medicine. There was no treatment, by and large. And um, people were ashamed. They didn't want anybody to know that they had a mental illness in the family because, um, beyond getting the bad name, um, reproduction issues started coming up. You didn't want to marry someone who had insanity in the family because your child might be insane and all this other stuff. And when the asylums came about, and, and again, there were doctors now who were in charge of these places, and they were beautiful, and they were funded by the government. And suddenly there was a place that you could send 
a relative that, that you wanted cared for, of course, you couldn't do it yourself. And there, there weren't many medicines, but there were treatments of a sort, um, activities, things to do. Um, the doctors, when these asylums were small and well-funded, uh, doctors sat down and talked with patients, um, tried to get their histories, tried to help them. And there was a cure rate that was actually very um, wonderful at the time because it had been considered an incurable disease. You know, if you caught somebody who was, you know, they had something, you know, melancholia, which we would call depression. If you could catch somebody right when it started, take them on an ocean voyage, you know, or whatever, that type of thing, you might be able to cure it. But for somebody who really has some mental health issues, there, would, there simply was no cure. And when people actually got better, the stigma started being erased to some extent, and people had a place to send their relatives now. And eventually, of course, then they um, they got overcrowded and uh, poorly funded. And that's when the horror stories developed because there weren't enough attendants, there weren't enough uh, uh, resources to go around, and, and they were actually, like I said, victims of their own success, in my opinion. Now, would they, have had, would they have had a better shot if there was more asylums out there at the time, or was there too much asylums? I mean, I think with overcrowding, it would be too little asylums. But, I mean, people under stress, you, you tend to try and find the easiest fix, and then somehow we get into the dark realm of lobotomies, which, I mean, effective at what cost is the real question there. But I, I'm just curious, so what, was, what do you think more asylums would have been better? Do you think that there would have been a better path that we would have stuck on maybe – a more positive, effective treatment. What happened in uh, the rest of the United States uh, was that an asylum would be built. It would get overcrowded. Maybe they would build another, another one. The overflow would go into that new asylum that also had a waiting list, and they just kept getting it. Um, overcrowded and the government would not, you know, each state legislature was having to pick up the tab. And, uh, you know, there's fiscal issues every generation, every uh, century, and they just stopped wanting to fund these places the way they needed to be funded. Um, yeah, money, money would have cured a lot of evil, I guess, at that point, but it just wasn't there. And yet the demand was there because, uh, you know, people who have ever had to take care of a violent person or someone totally divorced from reality, it's, it's hard. It's hard. And you get worn out and, and um, they didn't want to send that person uh, someplace where they thought they would be care, cared for. Um, the federal government had a place called, it was called St. Elizabeth's. It was a government um Asylum for the insane, but everybody called it St. Elizabeth's, and that was in Washington, D.C. area, and it was for soldiers and sailors, and then people from the District of Columbia. So there was one federal asylum for those people, and then in South Dakota is where they started the Canton Asylum, and with the rest of the population, um, you were halfway close to, to relatives or family or whoever had actually sent you to the asylum. Because most people, they just went to the nearest place, which would be in your own state. 
But for native peoples, um, they were all sent to South Dakota. Well, not every Indian tribe was in South Dakota. And, and there was a real heartbreak there too, because there was hardly any chance of getting a visitor, hardly any chance of um, communication with family or, or whatever. And there was just a lot of difference because of that situation than even what most people um, experienced. But I would say that eventually by the time people went to an asylum, their family was pretty tired of them, pretty tired of taking care of them. And so they were not in a good spot to begin with. And um, un unless they just had an episode of some, some sort and got well quickly, uh, then they normally stayed for, for quite a while. That probably makes it difficult for the family to want to check in um, on their family member. Not saying that they don't love them, but just a factor of being stressed out and wanting just waiting for a call to come through saying that the person's fixed or there's a cure that happened or maybe they're doing better to where they can actually handle maybe going back home and reintegrating. I mean, did you see more prioritized care in specific places? Well, um, to pick up on one thing you said, at the time, uh, psychiatric thought uh, considered that uh, visitors were bad for the patient. They no asylum superintendent encouraged visitors. Uh, they just felt it was a bad thing. Got the patient worked up. Got them wanting home, to go home uh, when they weren't cured yet, and that sort of thing. So, so visitors were allowed, but they were they were greatly discouraged anyway. Um, I I just I still th I think that by the time most people went to an asylum, their families were pretty tired of dealing with them, um, and that that's unfortunate. You know that uh, that it would get to that point because there was nothing in the public otherwise. There were no clinics. There were no um, you know no other places to send them. They just usually got worse and worse and worse and worse until the family couldn't take care of them. And then they sent them to an asylum. Not that they didn't love that person, but the hope that that person would get well at that point maybe was not very good because the, the mental illness normally would have been a very long standing. And there weren't treatments. That's the problem. They, um, outside of the actual individual attention that these early asylums were able to give, where they could sit down, talk with patients, and maybe find out what the issue was and try and help them with it there just weren't any medications and there were a lot of things that were considered insanity epilepsy was considered insanity alcoholism was considered insanity women who didn't conform to the female ideal were considered insane there were a lot of things that were considered insane that we would not you know today think and and there was no way to treat that kind of thing um they normally gave, it was a, a routine, light exercise, uh, occupation, uh, what they called tonics. I don't know what everything was made of, but just, you know, a little uh, something to opium. pick them up if, if they were run down. Um, a lot of opium, a lot of morphine, a lot of uh, laudanum, that type of thing to quiet them down. They had uh, hydrotherapy was a huge uh, area of treatment, and that was a lot of water therapies, and some could be. I'm sure probably relaxing and some could be very, very cruel. And a lot of it was um, the doctors in charge of these asylums. Uh, uh, it was set up on a, uh, 
a system where there was a superintendent in charge of the asylum. He was a, a physician, what they called an alienist. And um, kind of the asylum would be run the way that person wanted. And uh, uh, whatever he or she or he would tolerate or, or uh, condone. And the only asylums that maybe you were asked if there were any that were better or, or different would be private asylums um, with paying patients who paid a lot of money and had families who cared and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, there were some probably much, much better um, asylums uh, that had you know beautiful private rooms. I, I think it was McLean Asylum. I want to say in Massachusetts, but don't quote me on that. Um, rich people you know, went there um, and, and they had beautiful rooms and they had good care and, and all that because it, it was not dependent on um, state funds to, to get everything done. Um, you mentioned and again, a, it, a lot of it just boils down to money, just as it does today. Yeah. You mentioned a couple specific things, but I'm, when it comes to cancer as, asylum, that's the one that really gravitated a lot of your attention. I mean, you wrote a separate book on it. I'm curious, like in, in depth, like some things that appalled you. I know you talked about like starving patients, which I don't see that as a form of treatment. I just kind of consider it like some if you get punished or something of that sort. It's hard because I'm I've, I've talked to various different people who have different perspectives on asylum. So everything I see turns into more of a punishment aspect rather than like a a fasting thing like we would be doing today. Probably the the actual idea of the asylum was fairly benign when it was first suggested. And in Canton, uh, a very small town, a couple thousand people in South Dakota. And again, we're talking about 1902 um, when it began or when it opened the very last day of 1902. Um, at that time, people were proud of the asylums in their in their uh, hometowns, you know, they wanted them there, and they were delighted. It was a, it was sort of a pork barrel project uh, when, when that idea was first tossed around Congress. Not many people thought that it was needed, and uh, senator from South Dakota and, and uh, local interests, you know, uh, tried to drum up business. They found about fifty to sixty Indians who might be potential patients, and this was always a small asylum. Uh, it was originally built for 48 patients, 24 men and 24 women. And um, it was just something that the state sort of, I, and again, this is my opinion, um, the state wanted it, you know, as a prestige factor, uh, of course, jobs and money and that sort of thing. And when it first opened, there, there were hardly any patients. And um, the superintendent was a former congressperson who was uh, appointed and, and he was one of the few in the entire country who was not a doctor running the asylum. And as far as I can tell, there was a doctor there, Dr. John Turner, and, and uh, he was not um, an alienist himself. He was a medical doctor. And I don't think that either of those two people had an agenda per se. They wanted to do best they could. They got patients in, they took care of them physically. Uh, Oscar Gifford, the first superintendent, he allowed native dancing, he allowed basket weaving, he allowed any customs that he felt weren't going to be harmful. And people got well, and they got released, and so on. And um, it was after 
you know, he he made some pretty dismal mistakes. I, uh, I think he uh, didn't pay attention to what his own physician was trying to tell him to do and, and all that. And there was a pregnancy there. There was a death there that probably was uh, a, a medical, not a medical mistake. The doctor had wanted an operation and the superintendent just forbade it. And I, I have no idea why. I can't for life me figure out why you would have forbidden an operation and uh, the patient died. And there were congressional investigations. That's one thing that people, when I first started researching this, uh, said there was never an investigation. There were there were investigations every, there were um, inspections on the same schedule as any other federal agency. Uh, but there were a number of investigations that were brought out by um, people complaining and bringing things to the attention of the uh, Indian office and everything. And um, the place was just continued to, uh, was allowed to continue. And there were people that wanted it shut down from the get-go um, that suggested everybody be sent to St. Elizabeth's, the other federal institution. And it just was never done. And um, there were only two superintendents, the first one, and then Harry Hummer, who was the uh, second superintendent up until the time that it closed. He was a doctor. He was a psychologist. He came from St. Elizabeth's. And in my opinion, he is the problem. He was the one who really um, was responsible for its problems because he knew better. Uh, the first superintendent, he just kind of did it the best way he could. He was a competent uh, business person, but you know, he didn't have that kind of training, but Dr. Hummer did. And he had no interest whatsoever uh, in his patients' uh, backgrounds and cultures. And that, particularly for the Canton Asylum, which does deal only with Native peoples, that was the, in my opinion, the, the very worst thing that the government did to them. There was never an interpreter. So all these people were coming in from like 60 or 70 different tribes. Some could speak English, many couldn't. How could you tell if a person was insane or treat them if you couldn't speak their language? They had different cultural standards um, that were not the same as Anglos. Uh, a native person might act differently and be perfectly competent within his own culture, but an Anglo would look at it differently. And that that was the real shame of the whole thing that, that could have been prevented, should have been prevented, easily could have been prevented, and never was. And uh, that was, in my opinion, squarely on the, the shoulders of the man who ran the place. I mean, that thought had to cross their mind of getting an interpreter at some point, but nobody even bothered to reach out to one? I, I cannot see any evidence whatsoever that one was ever requested or suggested. And the government also at this at this time was running Indian schools for children, uh, which was another uh, scandal that if you find an expert on that, it would be well worth uh, looking into. But they they had interpreters. So it wasn't like the government didn't know uh, that, that they could be necessary, but they depended entirely on the superintendent of the Canton Asylum for any guidance on how to run the place. And he just never wanted the interference. He, he never wanted, uh, I think he was quite driven by ego and, and, uh, and arrogance, and he just did not want 
anybody but him having anything, any decision making uh, in the whole facility. Now, when did he get the job, the second one, the second uh, superintendent? When did he get the job at the asylum? And then also, what were some of his mistakes that you saw that could easily have been avoided? Well, the first one was, you know, he walked in, he knew nothing about Indian culture and, and didn't bother to learn. That was one mistake. Um, the other things that I found particularly wrong with him were maybe not mistakes, they were deliberate or they were personality traits. He did not want anybody um, giving him advice, which any any of the attendants could have very easily have maybe told him how to uh, run the place a little bit better since they had been there and were more used to that uh, facility than he was and he wouldn't take anybody's suggestions on anything. He wanted to be the, the, the head uh, honcho, I guess, in every single aspect. He ran off uh, the doctor who he inherited from the first superintendent and got another doctor in, ran him off, and then after that, never got another doctor. Uh, he just wanted to be in charge. And so because he had so many failings of his own, uh, he just couldn't run the place well. I mean, he knew... The, the medical aspect of taking care of people. And there was nothing to say that, you know, he didn't uh, use any medicine that he had at hand. It's just there weren't many medicines available, but uh, he got so bogged down in uh, administrative work. He didn't go and visit his patients every day the way he should. And one of the things that uh, is, again, ironic is this, first superintendent who wasn't even a doctor made rounds and saw his patients just as much as the real doctor did. You know, he, he showed um, that he, he had an interest at least. And Dr. Hummer um, it just didn't take an interest in his patients. So he didn't know a lot of things that were going on. Uh, the, the evidence that I have seen show, shows that if he ever saw or heard anything, like a beating or whatever, he would fire the person. But because he just stayed in his office, he didn't hear about these things very much. And that was his own choice. You know, it wasn't a mistake. It was his decision to do that. Um, so not, not necessarily a level of expertise. He was more about trying, I guess he was more about uh, being disconnected from his patients. I mean, that happens a lot when someone's been in the field for a very long time. Like how old was Dr. Hummer? Did he have a lot of experience? Like, was he more towards retirement than he was, uh, you know, starting out? No, he was a relatively, um, you know, I can't say at this point how old he was when he came out, but he, he had spent, um, several years at St. Elizabeth's getting his uh, residency and he was in charge of like 600 patients uh, at St. Elizabeth's and uh, the Canton Asylum, like I said, it was built for 48 people. Now it, it got uh, eventually had more buildings and, and um, became a bigger place, but it was never meant for more than a hundred people, even in the 1930s, you know, before it closed. So he had a really, a small patient pool, you know, um, in his asylum. That, that's one of the unbelievable things about it is 
the asylums that you normally hear so much about and, and all these horror stories, some of these places had hundreds and thousands of patients in them. He had 100 patients at the most uh, for, for almost his entire uh, tenure there and, and just couldn't be interested enough to take care of them. Um, he had the expertise. He was a real go-getter. He uh, graduated from, I think it was Columbia University. I'm not, not positive at this point. I really should have uh, written some notes here because I did read. Um, he had the expertise and he was given the training at St. Elizabeth's and, and uh, there was no excuse for what he did. That was the whole thing. But he had a reputation, even as I was researching his time at at St. Elizabeth's, he had a reputation for arrogance and, and just wanting his own way and not wanting to listen to other people and all that sort of thing that he just carried with him. And I think uh, a lot of people have wondered, you know, why would this guy who, who lived in Washington, D.C. and considered himself an Easterner and, and uh, sort of better than the people in South Dakota, why did he go there? And it was probably because he wanted to run his own institution. You know, that appealed to his ego. I was going to ask if he was having ivory tower syndrome, like he was better than everybody else, or if the move to that facility was a punishment. Um, a lot of times, you know, everyone I think has failures in life, but if you consider, I mean, running his own institution, maybe he thought better for himself. Maybe he thought he was going to be running some giant, big, giant thing he can put on a resume or be a huge credit for him. And then he gets stuck with the Canton Asylum. And he was like, why should I care if they're going to put me here? No, he he applied for the Canton Asylum. And um, it was, was not a punishment uh, in, in any any way, shape, or form. Um, the thing is, and, and again, you have to go back to the mindset of that time, but it was the only asylum in the entire world for Indians. That was a big deal. And South Dakota, the, the camp people, they thought they would be famous for that. And he, uh, Dr. Hummer, undoubtedly thought he would make a name for himself by going out there. He probably wanted to do research. He probably wanted to, you know, become an expert or, or whatever. And when he got out there, he, he basically despised everybody he met and thought he was better than they were. And, and just something ran him down. You know, I, I don't think it was probably wasn't what he expected, but he was kind of committed at that point. And, uh, you know, he couldn't make friends with people because he, he just thought he was better than they were. And he, all his interests tended to stay uh, back east. And, um, it, you know, eventually, of course, he did kind of integrate into the community and everything. But he, he came out with an attitude problem for sure and, and did not uh, initially sit well with the locals. And, and uh, I, I think he just became disenchanted probably fairly quickly. He made one report, and I know that it was in 1912 where he did a he read a paper back in those days, a lot of uh, research was simply read at conferences and they, they had a medical, medical, uh, you know, psychiatric conferences and that sort of thing. And he read his paper and it, it kind of just gave interesting case studies of, of various uh, conditions and the treatments that, that uh, he was going through. And this would have been about four years after he got there. And, uh, 
you know, it was published in the uh, the conference papers, but it was also published in the uh, um, American Journal of Insanity, which I just love as as a magazine title. But uh, you know, he got a little taste of of fame, a little taste of national you know recognition, and he couldn't get that at Saint Elizabeth's because he was just one of many doctors there. Uh, he was he was a not a cog in the wheel, but a, I mean, he just was not going to stand out at St. Elizabeth's the way he could stand out at the Canton Asylum. I'm, I'm sure that's what drove that decision to go out there was I'm going to be the head of my own asylum. My name's going to be associated with this wonderful opportunity to, um, you know, study a, a people that have not been studied. And uh, he just did not do what he maybe thought he could do. Did like when you get your documentation to be able to kind of shed in some light on him? Is did he keep a journal, or is there documents that you're going through in the archive or record? Um, it it uh, it's hard as I'll get out trying to find stuff like that. I went to the National Archives, and they had um, I lived in Arlington at the time that I wrote the bulk of the book, and. Um, you know, there are just boxes and boxes and boxes of, of uh, papers on, say, Canton Asylum. Well, I mean, they cover everything under the sun. And a lot of them, of course, are not going to be personnel related. And I had to look through, I found newspapers, I found congressional reports that mentioned his name. Uh, there was a huge investigation at St. Elizabeth's while he was a doctor there. And uh, his name was mentioned in a couple of incidents. and, and uh, that's how I found out about him. There was there's nothing. That's why he's a puzzle. The the staff are a puzzle. There's nothing that just lays all that out. You know, it's just every now and then I'd find a, a journal or a newspaper somewhere in that time period and there'd be a mention of the Canton Asylum. You know, was, anybody coming after me would write a different book because they'd find different things probably, but um no, it, it was hard. It was hard to get anything about him. Do you think that they destroyed a lot of documentation on it? Because they had to keep notes. They're doctors. Well, that was one of the problems was he did not keep adequate notes. Um, I think that there were there there may have been a repository somewhere that I didn't uh, go to that had some medical notes. And at the time of, of my um discovering that and writing the book, they really weren't necessary for what I was doing. I wasn't writing a patient history. I was trying to write, you know, the history of, of that asylum. Um, but yeah, he he was uh, dinged time and time and time again for not keeping adequate notes. And um, there were instances where someone came in, he didn't examine them for six, seven months, and then maybe didn't examine them ever again or 20 years down the road. And uh, yeah, he just he just stopped. Uh, you know, Sounds doing like anything that he should have done, and the problem, you know, was. Well, but he knew better, and Saint Elizabeth was one of the forerunners of you know how to do it right. You know, not that they didn't have their own problems and scandals. You know, I think any institution is going to have that, but he had the correct training. He knew what to do, and he should have done it, and he just didn't. Now, when you mentioned the death and the investigations that came there. Now, was it well known that asylums were having problems? Like, why were there so many investigations into that? 
Well, um, most asylums throughout their, their period of existence had a lot of investigations. You know, people, you know, and some of them were probably unfounded, some of them were well-founded and all that, but anytime you put um, a huge institution, now I'm talking now about America, the rest of, of America, um, you know, things go wrong. And there were, one, one really awful problem was that, you know, who wanted to work in an asylum? You know, the, the superintendent did because at the, when they first started, that was a well-paying position in the field of uh, psychiatric care. Um, but for attendants, uh, if, you've, if you've ever worked in, like I worked in a nursing home when I was 18, hard work, low pay, who wants to do it? You know, you, you do that to get a better job and you move on. And back then uh, it was the same way. You got people for the most part, you couldn't get a job anywhere else. Um, and there were a lot of problems that resulted. And I'm sure that, you know, at, at that time, people lived in the asylums, the doctors and the uh, attendants and all that, they actually had quarters in the asylum. So you never got away from it. And, um, you know, if you had violent patients or whatever, sometimes, yeah, you hit them back, you know, or defended yourself. I mean, I, you know, and I'm not excusing any of that behavior, but from my own experience, I do kind of understand how you could get so frustrated by somebody that, that you would mistreat them. Uh, some of the patients, you know, if, if they were violent or uh, attacked you or a lot of them uh, did everything they could to, to cause a disruption and and that just meant more work for the attendant and all that. And I'm sure some of them, given their backgrounds and, and uh, everything, they, they probably mistreated patients a lot. And some of that would get out and then that would trigger an investigation. And, you know, of course, they get rid of that attendant, and, you know, whatever. But um, it was a problem that until they could get tons and tons of attendance and pay them well was never going to go away. And I'm sure it's the same today. I mean, my uh, my mother's in a nursing home, and there's a, a dearth of attendance at that place, and it and it's well run. And um, I go there every day, almost sincere, and she's you know wonderfully cared for. But those are old people who don't cause any problems. And in a insane asylum, um, it it would be much harder work. And uh, do you do you think because you worked at a nursing home for a brief amount of time and your focus might be a little bit different than the perspective that most historians have? I I think I have an understanding of the situation that doesn't make me condemn as quite uh, quite as readily. I mean, I I can't excuse anything that went on, but I understand why it went on. You know, it doesn't make it right and and doesn't make it you know, excusable, but I understand why it went on. And that's what I could speak to is that, look, these were people who had no training, uh, whether you're at a, uh, you know, the rest of America uh, institutions or at Canton Asylum, they were never trained. They got low wages. Uh, they worked 12 hour days. People in that era, you know, they didn't get weekends off. They might get one half day a week and one Sunday off. 
a month, something like that. I mean, you just the the work was just unrelenting. I you know I can't imagine the stress level that these people are living under, and you know it again is it's not an excuse, but it, I do understand why some of them maybe just snapped. You know, I, uh, that's all I can say is they probably just couldn't control their their anger or frustration or stress enough to to uh, treat these people the way they should have been treated. And unless the government ever gave enough money to have a much more adequate staff, you know, it just wasn't going to happen. As much as there's applied pressures for families to put, you know, a loved one inside one of the, uh, an asylum, there's also applied pressures on the staff as well there. Imagine being unequipped, you know, you didn't have a whole bunch of experience, you might not ha have a lot of funding, and you have to deal with stresses or incidences that you might not be necessarily equipped for on a daily basis. So I, I can understand that. You know, uh, it, you know, it's a hard life. It's hard for everybody. And then you throw in at the Canton Asylum, maybe you have a language barrier as well. You have cultural barriers. They may be acting perfectly normally for their tribal background, but not the way an, an American out West would expect somebody to act. And they would see that as a problem, perhaps, and uh, try and stop it and, and uh you know, the list just went on and on. It just was not run with any kind of, you know, back in those days, um, there was very paternalistic attitude toward Native peoples. Um, the Anglo or white way was the way that you should behave. Uh, that was the culture that you were supposed to be assimilated into. And Anybody that didn't meet that was considered deviant or, you know, insane or you know, whatever label you're going to give them. And so Native people didn't have a chance when it came to having their own sensibilities recognized. You know, they just were expected to be like white people, and they weren't. And especially if you couldn't speak the language, what were you going to do? Um you know, you couldn't even tell somebody what your problem was if you had one. So, they, you know, they, they the cards were stacked against them from the get-go. You know, it, it was just so unfortunate that that they were in a place like that and their family couldn't get to them. Most Native peoples were very, very poor, couldn't afford a, a train ride. With the language barriers, they may not have been able to make one anyway. Anytime a patient was discharged, they usually had an escort take them back to the reservation because of those issues. And so these people never got uh, many family visitors. Um, and so on top of everything else, they had to be especially lonely, especially isolated, especially um, disconnected from the people around them. You know, you could have six patients sharing a room maybe and but if they didn't speak each other's languages, you know, or maybe there were, you know, there were tribal anim animosities as well. Um, you know, it, it just was a, a terrible place to be. Now, when it shut down, can you take me through when it shut down? Like, what were the things that happened after? Well, it was it was shut down. You know, times changed. There was a recognition. Uh, people like John Collier, who uh, ended up being the um, Commissioner of Indian Affairs um, under uh, Franklin Roosevelt, 
there was a change. There was a, a period of muckraking in the, the U.S. I don't know if you've heard that term or familiar, but there were there were people who uh, looked into all kinds of abuses everywhere, child labor and um, uh, just uh, awful, awful things going on in, uh, you know, uh, working conditions in most uh, factories and that type of thing. And so the public attitude changed. They were much more willing to accept that there were maybe some problems that needed to be taken care of, much more willing to, to take care of them. And uh, John Collier, uh, when he first became commissioner of Indian Affairs, uh, he he loved uh, a lot about Indian culture. And he had gone to visit an old friend uh, uh, at one of the Pueblos and uh, the wife of a patient at Canton Asylum uh, got to him and said, could you please try and get my husband out? So uh, John Collier went back and right before uh, he had taken office, there had been a huge, huge investigation by a, uh, a doctor from St. Elizabeth's. And, and instead of a 10 page report, there's like a hundred pages. It told everything. It talked about children being chained to water pipes and you know, a blind person being straightjacketed and, and all this kind of stuff. Collier read that report and he did something about it. And he went and uh, immediately went to the Department of the Interior, uh, Harold Ickes, I believe, and wanted to get it shut down. And they started proceedings. I mean, this, I mean, this place had been investigated and, and for years and years and years uh, from 19... It opened the last day of 1902. This is 1933. And it had, had plenty of investigations. Nothing had ever shut it down. And, and Collier and Ickes were going to shut it down in just a matter of weeks. And uh, the townspeople rallied and Congress people got involved. They tried to stop it. Uh, there was a publicity campaign. They put it out in the papers, you know, some of the conditions and pretty well cut the opposition down and they went sent this original uh, physician from uh, St. Elizabeth's back out there and he examined everybody he let go a lot of people that were not insane he released some mild cases to their um, home reservations and families and the rest of the patients were transferred to St. Elizabeth's and I could follow a little bit of the aftermath of that, but not much because I mean, I had to end someplace. And uh, so the the patients who were not able to go back home or were or, or considered uh, still insane or, or with mental issues, they were taken to St. Elizabeth's. Most of them stayed there. Some were transferred to state agencies, but that's basically what happened. The place was shut down, uh, eventually torn down. There's nothing out there now um, except the cemetery. And you mentioned back when you mentioned the deaths and the pregnancy that the people didn't want an asylum there. If I'm not mistaken, that's what they, they, there's people that didn't want asylums. I feel like no, they did. They, okay. they, they, people wanted asylums. It, it was prestige and jobs and um, at, at that period of time, they didn't have that not in my backyard thinking that a lot of people have today, they were, they were glad to have it. Um, so no, there was no uh, stigmatism at all for, for 
for having an asylum in, in Canton. They were quite proud of it. Now, when it comes to what you've learned through the documentation and through your interest in looking into the history of asylums, I mean, what's one bad takeaway and what's one good takeaway that you've had? Well, the bad takeaway is that um, there are problems that just are so extensive that you are not going to solve them unless you have a commitment that's greater than most governments or most people are going to have. You know, I mean, I there's a, a similar mental health crisis today. There's not adequate funding. There's not adequate places for people to go to. It's the same old thing. Unfortunately, that's probably going to remain the state of affairs, you know, uh, in the foreseeable future. And the, the nice thing is, is that there were people who cared, you know, I mean, they, you know, it's easy to focus on all the bad things, but there are a lot of people who cared a lot about mental health issues and really, really wanted to help what at the time they called them unfortunates and later called them defectives and, you know, that type of thing. But, but there was a lot of caring, you know, not everybody was callous, not everybody, um, was indifferent, you know, they, they did care and they cared enough to, to, uh, start investigations and complain and, and turn people in and, and that sort of thing. And, and that's wonderful too, that there is a level of a protection that come from ordinary people. And when it comes to writing about, uh, insane asylums or just asylums, did you not have another idea in your head that you wanted to go towards? Or was this your first? Because I have to think you'd pick like a happier topic. I mean, you keep writing books about asylums. I would just get depressed. <laughs> well, I didn't know what I was getting into at the time. And, and again, I was interested in the history of medical treatment for insanity. That's all I was interested in. And, and this Indian insane asylum is just what got my attention. And I found it for the most part, just extremely interesting. Um, you know, I mean, the more I delved into it, it was awful. Um, but again, it was history. It was just something that I, I was fascinated by. And my uh, master's thesis was uh, on uh, insane asylums in the Appalachian area. And it is just endlessly fascinating. I, that's all I can say about it. And if you if you look on the internet, if you just Google insane asylums, you'll see a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand different entries, you know, pop up because there are just people are interested in that topic. I don't know what it is that is so fascinating, except part of you is just looking at the whole subject and saying, I just can't believe. That this happened, you know, or I just can't believe people thought this way. And, and, uh, because I'm not diving into the actual mechanics of, of why people are mentally ill or, or how they're treated today, I, I probably have a, a little bit more detachment than someone today talking about today's problems would have because this all happened, you know, practically 100 years ago. You know, you are able to distance yourself a little bit. But the nice thing is, is that because I did do this book and I, I did 
compile a list of patients and, and people in the cemetery. That helped the native community a lot. Um, they appreciated that effort. And I am prouder of that than anything I've, I've done probably is that there was light shed on this that a lot of native people didn't know about. And um, they, they appreciated that someone did write about it and bring it out into the open. So uh, other people have kind of taken it from there, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad that something prodded me enough to, to not let it go. And, uh, and write about it. I, I respect your work and I appreciate what you've done um, with your work there. I, I think if you look at when asylums closed, we should have thought of bracing of what we were going to do next, because a lot of those people ended up going to prisons and things of that sort, um, which is not an answer either. Um, obviously, I didn't want those asylums to, to you know, stay open, but. There was a lot more time and probably, I mean, if we had, there's a time restraint in our society. It's always been here throughout history of like, we need to do the next thing as fast as possible. And I think that plays a big factor as well too. I mean, doctors still don't have enough time today for every individual patient, which leads to a lack of care. And I think that's the same thing as it was back then as well too. And it's not done from a lack of caring on the part of the doctor or or medicine in general, it's just, here's the facts of life. You know, if you have to see 40 patients a day, then you've got 10 minutes, you know, with each of them or whatever. And, you know, in the, in the sixties is uh, when the uh, asylums or they weren't called asylums by then, <clears throat> but uh, that's when they start emptying out and, and the thinking at the time, and again, this is not my area of expertise was that people were better off being in society, you know, and, and being reintegrated into society and getting the help they needed to function rather than being warehoused, which is basically what was going on at that time. And and again, it was that intent was correct, you know, or that intent was benign or it was good or it was positive, but there was not the money shaken loose to implement that program. They turned a lot of people out uh, of institutions and they didn't get follow-up care and there weren't enough halfway houses and there wasn't enough, you know, a lot of these people probably could not take care of themselves. So they ended up on the streets and they ended up in prison. And the urge was correct maybe to get them out of institutions, but it does it wasn't implemented correctly. And again, a lot of that was funding, you know, just Money makes a lot of difference, you know, when you, when you speak to any kind of societal issue uh, that needs addressing is, is money is one of the big factors in it being successful. Money runs the world. Uh, that's uh, I think everybody can hop on board that one. But Carla, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show. Um, like I said, I respect the work that you've done and I appreciate it very much. Is there a place where people can find your links um, where they can find your books, any social media handles and websites as well? Um, yeah, you can buy, uh, buy it on Amazon. Um, can uh, if you can excuse me a second, I'll just get a copy of it. It's called Vanished in Hiawatha's the Story of the Canton Asylum for Insane Indians. And um, Amazon's the best, best place to get it. Uh, 
you know, it, it was published in 2016 and has remained in print, but I would doubt very much that many bookstores would carry it. So um, I'm writing a little series now uh, just about different patient populations. It was hard to do anything during COVID, so I just decided to self-publish. And I've got a book out called Little Lunatics that uh, focuses on children in insane asylums throughout the country. And, and that's, again, interesting. Um, but yeah, that, that would be the best thing to do. Just go to Amazon. Well, I'm going to link all your links into the description. Um, and I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show. And thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast.